the battle over access to abortion. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Everyone is awaiting the next move by the U.S. Supreme Court on Roe v. Wade. Democratic South Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz joins us to discuss efforts in Congress to make access to abortion legal. Plus, a court recently decided on one of the biggest settlements in U.S. history. The families of victims of the Champlain Tower South collapse will get close to a billion dollars. And finally, we certainly have to work a little harder and, you know, live up to our promises to the community. The Miami Marlins continue to struggle to put a winning team on the field, but they are winning in one way. They're one of the few teams in the country putting women in executive positions. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. After the tragic condo collapse in Surfside last summer, no condo safety reform was passed statewide. As we edge closer to the one-year mark since the traumatic events, Democrats in Congress still want to see state lawmakers take action in Tallahassee. I spoke with South Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz about this earlier this morning, and we also talked about access to abortion. I want to start with condo reform first. Um, You wanted Governor Ron DeSantis to include condo safety reform measures in the recent special session, the one that that included the redistricting and the fight against Disney. Um, All the Democratic members of Congress from Florida signed a letter asking for this, but we didn't see it. What do you think it's going to take to get that issue on the calendar? Um. Well, Florida lawmakers are going into special session next week, next week to take up some very unfinished business on property insurance reforms. And that's a perfect time to take up condo, condo reform because the two issues are linked. Um, there is an exodus of insurers fleeing from underwriting condo policies in our state, and state lawmakers have given them no confidence to do otherwise. Um, and that's left condos associations with aging buildings to deal with insurers in the lesser regulated surplus market. Um, and that means higher prices, often a lot higher and for less protection. So, I mean, right now we've got state lawmakers, Republican state lawmakers and Ron DeSantis who are not protecting the safety of condo owners or protecting their pocketbooks. Uh, it is a total dereliction of duty to the people of Florida. Um, and basically it, they're in action amounts to a, a new condo tax. There's no no other way to describe it. Um, there are higher prices on, on condo insurance as a result of Ron DeSantis refusing to do anything about it. Um, and we have to we have to stay true to our word. I stood we stood side by side at press conference after press conference in the aftermath of the Surfside condo collapse and said that we would do things to never let it happen again. And there are countless Floridians who could be in unsafe structures who are potentially heading toward another surfside tragedy. We've already had two large condominiums evacuated because they were too unsafe to inhabit. I don't know if you've heard from any of the Demo- any Florida Democrats, but I, I mean, if you see it as a possible as a possibility that it's going to be discussed in next week's special session. And the ball is in Ron DeSantis' court. I mean, I don't understand when he added property, ins- when he when he called a special session on property insurance, 
why he wouldn't have added condo reform, other than he probably doesn't want to wade into the difficult politics of that. Uh, he is abdicating uh, his leadership role. The, the House and Senate Republicans that were negotiating the condo reform legislation during the regular session were very close. And Ron DeSantis, just like anything else that he's insisted on, uh, that the, he's, he's insisted on that Republicans do, uh, should use his office and his power to help them bring condo reform in for a landing. Well, every day that passes that he doesn't do that is costing condo residents all over the state of Florida a lot more money. Is there room for a bill to address this on a federal level? Uh, this is not something that we can do on the federal level. I mean, this kind of reform is handled by by, by states. Insurance regulation um, and and property insurance those are those are you know and and building codes. Those are things that are regulated at the state level. Now, you know, Charlie Crist and I um, just filed a bill to help make it easier for condo owners to afford special assessments when there are costly structural and safety repairs that come up. Um, so that we can establish a loan program for those uh, for those condo residents, but the the regulation of building codes and 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 condominium law is handled at the state level. So this is in the state legislative and governor's wheelhouse, and the governor is abdicating his responsibility, costing condo residents more money, and uh, and and leaving people in unsafe structures. What do you want to see enacted? That, that, that is not for me to determine. I want to have the legislature and the governor pass a, a condo, condominium reforms that are going to make sure that people aren't living in condominiums with un, that, that are unsafe. And that's, that's their job. Uh, they are refusing to do their job. And all I ask is that they do all they can to prevent another Champlain Towers South tragedy. But what do you what do you hear from voters? What's what's scaring them the most right now? I mean, look, they, they uh, the the condominium residents that I represent, uh, particularly those in uh, in in you know taller tower structures, are worried about you know when their condominium is is going to be inspected. They're worried about. Uh, how they're going to afford the, um, you know, the, the, the repairs that, uh, that need to be made. They're worried about repairs that their condominium board are ignoring. Um, and so those are all issues that, uh, that need to be taken up by the state legislature and the governor needs to get involved. Um, you know, the, 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 the legislature could help with condo reserves. I mean, they could, they could pass you know, pr programs at the state level to help condominiums with their reserve issues. So with their reserve funding issues. I wanted to come to you. You had secured $22 million for the National Institute of Standards and Technology to investigate this. Uh, that's ongoing. Uh, real quickly, just remind us where that money comes from. The, the $22 million that funds in the National Institute of, uh, of Standards and Technology investigation is federal funding. Um, and that investigation is federal. The, that agency is responsible in, in disasters like this to um, investigate. Uh, the, they, they, find, they find fact, not, not fault. So they are going to get to the bottom of how this, this collapse occurred. And, you know, they'll make recommendations as to, you know, how to, how to uh, you know, make sure that it wouldn't happen again. 
but they um, they don't find fault. They find fact. And so that's uh, that funding. But the results of that investigation, you know, can help prevent the next Surfside. But that has nothing to do with Republicans in Tallahassee adopting condominium reforms because there are problems like the uh, Champlain Towers South uh, uh, condominium had all over the state. Is it possible that we can't pass any laws yet if we don't know exactly what happened? We have ideas, but there's, that's an ongoing no, investigation. No, 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 no. The, 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 the investigation with the, the NIST investigation really is very granular, and, uh, and, and, but the, the, the basics of what we do know is that there are it, condos all over the state that need to have help with their reserve funds. They need to make sure that they have uh, inspections done so that they know what damage that has occurred to, uh, to their condominium structures. And, uh, and, and they, they need to be able to make repairs. Uh, and those are things that the legislature does not need to wait for the federal for the federal investigation to conclude. So my, and I mean, we can't afford to wait. I mean, we can't we can't afford to wait. And that's that that's where the state needs to step in. I'm speaking with South Florida Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She represents parts of Broward and Miami-Dade counties in the U.S. House of Representatives. And we're talking about condo safety reform and Surfside, as well as access to abortion. You can read more about Wasserman Schultz's involvement with these issues on our social media at WLRN Sundial. And as you know, I mean, Miami-Dade and Broward already do require inspections every 40 years, but uh, no other county does in Florida. What what Miami-Dade and Broward are doing, is that sufficient? Would you want to see that statewide, or still is there more? Well, those are the questions that the state legislature needs to step up and answer. Uh, I mean, they, they have legislation that, like I said, you know, was in the House and the Senate that were they were not very far apart. And the way things get done in the legislative process, when the governor wants something to happen, they step they step in and they use their leadership role to try to help negotiate the final solution. Um, I mean, you know, the, the laws in Broward, Broward and Miami-Dade County are good models to look at. But, you know, without statewide action, insurers of condominiums are going to flee the state or they're going to, as they are now, make condo insurance so expensive that it will make it unaffordable. And that is basically a condo tax hike that Republicans in the state who lead this state could prevent, but they are sitting on their hands and doing nothing. I want to move over now to another topic, and I want to ask you about the leaked draft opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court about access to abortion. You've been very outspoken about the, the leaked draft. Uh, in a statement, you called on the U.S. Senate to follow the U.S. House's vote that would have codified Roe v. Wade into law. Um, to make abortion legal throughout the United States. It was defeated in the U.S. Senate last week. I mean, did you you weren't surprised by that, though, were you? Um, the leaked draft decision to overturn Roe really foreshadows a very dark future for, for women. Um, half of all childbearing-aged women would lose control over their own bodies. Half of U.S. states are poised to immediately outlaw or heavily restrict abortion. Women are going to be forced into pregnancies. You're going to have essentially government-mandated pre- pregnancy if, if Roe is overturned. And essentially, a woman's body would be like state property. Um, and, and look, you have these justices who all lied to the United States Senate under oath. 
I testified in 2006. Uh, you know, I could see this coming when it came to just ju then Judge Alito, um, because I was a witness in the U.S. Senate confirmation hearing of the man who was then Judge Samuel Alito. And I sound, sounded an alarm that a right wing that, that he was a right wing extremist and, you know, he would be coming to take our rights away. And you had the, you know, all five of the justices that are, you know, supposedly uh, going to be in the majority if this decision holds, um, who who lied under oath and who, you know, simply can't be trusted uh, to, uh, you know, to, to in anything that they said during their confirmation hearings. The Senate, the Senate vote, though, last week, was it just to get it on the record or do you think Congress can actually pass a law? Congress has to pass a law. We have to codify Roe. We have to pass the Women's Health Protection Act because, you know, the 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 rights of women to make the, the their own decisions about their body are going to be yanked away. I mean, I'm a mother of two young adult daughters throughout their whole lives. They grew into young women knowing that they had this basic constitutional and human right to control their own bodies. And now that may be gone. I'm going to battle to my last breath to prevent this loss and do all I can to preserve and restore our sacred rights. Um, it, it's, you know, we've got a, a sick man in the governor's mansion here. We can expect a ban here in Florida before the ink on the SCOTUS decision is dry. Do you think that this, uh, it was a leaked draft, but do you think this is what we can expect to see later this summer? I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, I mean, it, it certainly seems as though this is like this is the likely outcome. Um, obviously, they say that that you know justices can change their mind, but um, the only thing that, the thing that that people who believe that you shouldn't have government mandated pregnancy and that the government shouldn't be taking over women's bodies and telling us what we have to do with them is we have to power to ensure that that can't happen um, federally across. And we have to get out and vote this fall, tune in and turn out in the big numbers that will allow us to stop Republican extremists from denying women basic reproductive rights. How do you think this is going to play out in November? If 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 the U.S. Supreme Court does overturn it, what do you think happens in November? Well, I, I think that there will be many women and people who believe across this country that the government should not be forcing you to be pregnant that the government shouldn't be in your doctor's office <clears throat> uh, or in your bedroom and uh, and telling a woman what she has to do with her own body um, that are going to go to the polls and, and vote for majorities that would uphold a woman's right to make her own choice, her, her own reproductive choices. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, look, past is prologue. In the late 90s, if you remember when the Republican Congress passed a late term abortion ban and President then President Clinton vetoed it. Um, you know, after that, there were massive numbers of Republican women in the suburbs and other people who believed that you know the government. This was none none of the this is a decision that was none of the government's business, and uh, and and voted for for Democrats and uh, and reelected President then President Clinton. So I I I think that there are many many voters across this country that don't want government mandated pregnancy and don't want the government all over this country to be deciding whether a woman uh, you know can has to carry a baby or not I uh, you know I just wanted to point out that you know again you know Florida's law is now 15 week banned 
Uh, mm-hmm. That wouldn't change if Roe is overturned. Um, what I expect is that the Republican extremists in Tallahassee won't stop there. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the governor adds a total abortion ban in anticipation of the a road decision to the call next week. Uh, I think we can expect in Florida that these extremists here in Florida would ban abortion completely. And a 15, let, let, let's make no mistake, a 15 week abortion uh, limitation is unacceptable in, in, in this state. Um, Roe and, and the, the law of the land right now um, allows a woman to make her own reproductive choices until viability. That's exactly how it should remain. And that's, I think, how people who believe that government shouldn't force you to remain pregnant, government shouldn't force you to give birth, government shouldn't force rape and incest victims like Florida would to remain pregnant if the, a pregnant pregnancy results. Um, and I think the voters are going to go to the polls and elect people who share their views on that. And that's November. But again, waiting for this summer, if there is going to be a release uh, if what we expect from the U.S. Supreme Court, what options do Democrats reasonably have ahead of that opinion release? I'm not sure what you what you mean. I mean, what else? What what is the party talking about doing? What can you do? Uh, you know, before the U.S. Supreme Court makes that decision later this summer, if that's exactly what they're going to do, if they're going to overturn it. Well, this isn't just about Democrats. There there are millions, and you know, there, there are you know tens of millions of people. Uh, regardless of party, that believe that women should be able to make their own decisions about what happens to their body and that oppose government mandated pregnancy and that don't believe that if you're raped or a victim of incest, that you should be forced to carry a baby and give birth to a baby. Um, There are states all over this country that would force you to share visitation and custody with your rapist unless uh, unless that that person was convicted. Um, So uh, look, the, the, it, we have to make sure that we ask that every Republican candidate across this country is asked whether they think that government should force you to be pregnant. And, you know, there are activists flooding the streets. And I think that there will be voter, voters flooding the polls who will vote against candidates that believe that government should force you to remain pregnant. That was Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She represents parts of Broward and Miami-Dade counties. And just a reminder that the governor has been quiet on the possibility of further abortion restrictions in Florida as of now. He has not indicated that he's pursuing a full abortion ban at this time. And we'd love to hear from you your thoughts on whether condo safety, because, again, that uh, is not coming up or hasn't been brought up for the special session Uh, what that condo safety reform should look like. And, of course, on the issue of abortion, you can share your thoughts. Join our Sundial Text Club. Just text JOIN to 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. That is the best way to keep in touch with us and to share your thoughts or ask questions during any of our program. Well, still to come, Surfside condo collapse victims and their families have reached a big settlement. How will that money be distributed? Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Victims of the Surfside condo collapse have reached a nearly $1 billion settlement. 
It was announced last week. The defendants include insurance companies and engineers tied to the tragedy that killed 98 people last summer. The official cause of the collapse is still unknown, and the settlement is pending approval. Next will come the emotional process of dividing that money. Sean Domnick is an attorney with the firm Domnick, Cunningham & Whalen, based out of West Palm Beach, and he's following the case. He joins us now to discuss. Sean, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good afternoon. Sean, the settlement was revealed last Wednesday, and again, still pending approval, but from who? What, what do you see over, uh, foresee will happen next? Well, the, the settlement comes from the insurers for the Condominium Association, developers of an adjacent building, and uh, other defendants, such as some of the engineers that were involved in some of the things that were going on uh, when the building collapsed. And so what will happen next is that Judge Hansman will go through a process that uh, ultimately, I believe, will lead to approval of the settlement. Uh, typically, in this circumstance, what they'll do is set up uh, a, sort of a grid in which different uh, levels of injury and different numbers of survivors are put in and the money will be split up in that fashion. And let's take a look at that amount, the settlement, $997 million. As you said, this is Judge Michael A. Hansman of the Circuit Court of Miami-Dade, uh, who's presiding over the case. He said that that dollar amount exceeded what he had anticipated. And you've been following this case, but your thoughts on almost a billion dollar settlement. Well, I think it's a testament to the lawyers who were representing the injured victims and their families uh, to the efforts that they made to uh, show the extent of the, the loss that was suffered by these families. And it's also, I think, a testament to the folks who were representing the insurance companies uh, that came to, to the settlement table where everybody recognized how tragic and great this loss was uh, to these families and that it was in everybody's best interest uh, to sit down and try to negotiate a resolution uh, at this point. And I can tell you one thing in my experience is that, you know, the defendants never pay a dime more uh, than, than they think is reasonable. And I think it's also a testament to Judge Hansman, who oversaw uh, this process and has made sure that everybody who was involved stayed focused on what the big picture was and the end goal that was in sight and, and kept people headed down the right line. That's how things how things uh, were done so quickly. Typically, something like this could take years. Where do, Where's that money coming from? I mean, the defendants really have the capability of paying that out? So the money is primarily going to be coming from the insurance, the various insurance carriers uh, that are involved. You know, people pay their premiums for exactly this type of situation. That Not that anybody was saying, oh, our building is going to collapse, but you pay premiums to insurance companies uh, to pay to cover risks that something bad is going to happen. And so the insurance companies uh, come in and, and pay uh, the amount that they promise to pay. Does this mean, the settlement mean that those companies, those groups involved will not have to admit wrongdoing? Typically in settlements like this, nobody ends up admitting any wrongdoing. I think that the size of the settlement talks a lot about accountability uh, in this uh, circumstance, but I doubt that anybody is going to raise their hand and come forward and say, yes, it truly was my fault. You have risk and negligence. Does this money cover both? Sure. So so the risk is that somebody would do something negligently. And so this is what is covering both of those things, that 
the risk that somebody act negligently or fail to do what is reasonable under the circumstances. So it does cover both. All right. So again, uh, the, the next steps would be determining how to split it. How do you see that happening? Well, typically in a circumstance like this, what will happen is that a, a special master uh, or an administrator will be appointed who will then work with the lawyers to make a determination. Uh, you know, some people obviously were killed. Uh, some people were killed right away. Some people survived and then died. Uh, some people uh, have more survivors than others. So they'll, they'll come up with a methodology of looking what the law is and what the law says appropriate recoveries are. And then they'll apply the facts to come up with what is reasonable for each one of the claimants. And this always comes to that question of when you have, when someone dies, is putting value on that life and how, how the court makes that determination. I don't know, what does the law say about, you know, how, how much value can you put on a life? So, you know, each case is its, is its own circumstance, but it's not just um, some just like made up sort of number. You look at a variety of factors that, that help evaluate what it might be. Was it sudden? Was it unjust? Uh, was it un- unexpected? The degree of negligence uh, that occurred, the, uh, the age of the victims, their survivors. So in Florida, we don't really talk about it being the value of a life. In fact, we're not allowed to say that or argue that in front of a jury. Instead, it is the pain and the suffering and the loss of companionship of the survivors, the spouses, the children, the parents of those that were so harmed or those that uh, were injured, uh, things like their physical pain and suffering, mental pain and suffering. And so you look at those in, in, in a courtroom, a jury would consider those injuries, the length of time over which those injuries occurred, the severity of it, and and would then apply the structure of the law to those particular facts to come up with a number. And that's what they're gonna do here in uh, ultimately determining who it is, how much each survivor is going to get. And I mean, look, let's acknowledge, of course, the fact that no amount of money is replacing no. the loss of a loved one, but this is how the system works. You know, in, in also in a situation like this, I mean, how much of this are we looking at as legal fees? So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, Judge Hansman is going to be working with the, the attorneys on uh, what the legal fees are going to be. I don't know what that's what those numbers are going to be. But, it, you know, without the lawyers stepping up and, and you know, the, and willing to risk their own money, which they did in doing their investigation, probably millions of dollars of their own money at this point, uh, with this, without the lawyers coming in and doing what they did, I guarantee you that you wouldn't be looking at a resolution of this magnitude or even a percentage of this magnitude, and certainly not this quickly. So, you know, are, you talk about that is the system that we have. It's the system that's set up by our federal constitution and our state constitution, the right to trial by jury. Uh, and, and we recognize that, you know, we don't want people going for eye for an eye type of justice. So, uh, you know, it is about looking at, is there an amount of money that can measure up some piece of justice in this case? And I guarantee you that every one of these families would gladly give that $997 million back if their loved ones could be here with them today. 
I'm speaking with Sean Dominic, uh, an attorney with the firm Dominic Cunningham and Whalen out of West Palm Beach. We're talking about the recent settlement that was reached by the victims of the Surfside condo collapse. Nearly a billion dollars in compensation for the survivors and victims' families. The judge is hoping to finalize the settlement by June and have the families receive the money in the fall. You can find more of this, of this story on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Sean, I wanted to ask you about the other settlement. There was a smaller settlement of $83 million. It was approved by Judge Hansman uh, for unit owners covering property losses. Um, this settlement released condo owners from liability on the collapse? So the, the combined settlements for the the... Um, property damage, you know, and a lot of these families still have no place to live. They're living with relatives and, and living out of motels and hotels and all of that. So again, the fact that, that, that these settlements have come so quickly is going to allow them uh, to move on with their lives in a meaningful, uh, in a meaningful way. But yes, the, the combined settlements uh, should end up in a release of the condominium association, the condominium owners. What was the argument for suing the condo owners? Um, I think that really the, the argument is tied in with the condominium association. You were on with the congresswoman uh, a little while ago, and you know we, we don't have rules for these condo associations where they are where they are required to fund yearly for property repairs that they know are going to happen. We know what seawater does to these buildings. We know uh, how they need to be repaired, and so all of a sudden what happens is that they're told, oh, you have to write a check for some large amount of money per condo, and they put that off as long as they as they can. So, uh, you know, the question for them was certainly about should they have undertaken these repairs uh, sooner? Did they have notice about the problems that were there? Uh, and certainly we've all read the papers with regard to um, some of the notice uh, that is alleged that they that they were aware of. So, uh, it, it was the failure, the allegations against them would be based on the failure to um, repair the property when they ought to have. Does, does the money go to, is it both the condo owners from the tower that collapsed and the other part that had to be demolished later? The From the property damage settlement yeah, portion that, of it? Right, the 83. Uh, right, right. The, the, the vast majority of that, if not all of it, is going to go to the uh condo the, the champlain towers condo let owners. me come back let me come back to the 997 million dollar settlement sure. for the families um judge hansman has said that he'd like to finalize this by late june um the dollar amount of the settlement though could it go up before then could it increase i i don't think that it will increase at least with regard to the people who are involved in the settlement and have it already done it um that number is going to be Pretty much etched in stone. Uh, the question is going to be: Is there some other uh, company or somebody else out there that it's later determined uh, might have played a role in this terrible tragedy? And for them, this would not affect any potential claims on that. But I would be surprised if there's anybody else out there. The quality of the lawyers uh, that were involved in this uh, were top notch, and, and I'm certain that they made sure to bring. Uh, all the people to the table where the evidence showed that there was some responsibility. And again, the judge said that they would like to see the money distributed to families by the fall. Is that a possibility? Is that fast? It, it is fast. But, you know, so far, Judge Hansman has really, as I said, 
done a great job of keeping people focused on what it is that needs to be done. And I think that the heaviest of the lifting has been done uh, right now. The remainder of what needs to be done, um, while important, is something that if focused on that I think that the target dates that are set by the judge are certainly reasonable. So the, the National Institute of Standards and Technology is still investigating the cause of this collapse. And that, that they've said that the investigation could take years. How are we getting to a settlement now if we still don't even know the full details of, of the collapse? Well, you don't have to know every detail of a collapse in order to be able to start saying, uh, more likely than not, what is it that happened here? Who is it that's responsible uh, for what happened? And you, you might find out some details later on to refine some of the thought process of what was going on, but in, able to, in order to determine, did the condominium association have noticed that there was a problem? Should they have been doing something more for it? Did the folks who were doing the building next door, uh, should they have known that what they were doing with pounding into the ground might have an impact on buildings next to it. Um, I think that that's the type of stuff that you can figure out fairly quickly and obviously was done. I mean, I, I want to I want to reiterate, there is no way in the world that the insurance companies would have stepped up to pay this kind of money if the plaintiff's lawyers had not put together a very compelling case. So there's no chance that, I mean, later on, after the investigation's over, we learned something we didn't know that wouldn't have any effect on the settlement? No, that'll have no effect on the settlement at all. Once once the people have reached their peace on both sides, neither side gets to come back and say, the plaintiffs don't get to come back and say, gee, you owe me more money, and the defense doesn't come, to come back and say, uh, you owe me money back. That That's not the way it works. Everybody's getting finality. That's good for everybody. The system needs finality. You know, the system, it, it is a complicated system, uh, it, you know, and in tragedy. It also, I think, as you pointed out, why it's so necessary. Sean, I really appreciate the insight, all the information. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Again, Sean Domnick, an attorney with the firm Domnick, Cunningham & Whalen out of West Palm Beach. And you can learn more about the, the settlement on our social media at WLRN Sundial or on the website, WLRN.org. Well, still to come, the Miami Marlins team is breaking through old barriers with more women leading in executive positions. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. You know, the Miami Marlins are a team that has had a lot of struggles on the field. They are near the bottom of the National League Conference, and they've been a losing team for years. But look, give the team some credit. One of the team's three top executives, actually of the team's three top executives, two of them are women. They made Kim Ang the first ever female general manager of any sports club in North America. And Caroline O'Connor is the chief operating officer. Most teams don't have that. We spoke with Caroline about her role with the team and the departure of Derek Jeter as part owner. Plus, what will it take to build a winning team? We asked her that question. We started, though, by asking why she left the finance world for a job in baseball. You've been with the Marlins now since, what, 2017, right? Yes, been with the Marlins going on five years. If you look back on those five years, what jumps out at you? 
most? I think for me, it's about, you know, the excitement of first coming here and just the opportunity that was in front of us, um, you know, coming here to a great community uh, and just, you know, getting to know the community, getting embedded in South Florida and really, you know, engaging with the organization here at the Marlins, engaging with our fans and just, you know, looking at the progress that we've made uh, every year in the community, um, you know, on the field with the organization and just, you know, taking pride in the um, you know progress that we've made along that time. Now you were in banking and finance. You were at Morgan Stanley before this. What pulls you away from that kind of life to come work in professional baseball? I think there's a few things. So growing up a sports fan and just loving um, rooting for a team and the competitive nature of sports was something that, you know, really uh, aligns uh, with, with me and my nature. But I think just the overall opportunity of being part of building something and delivering something special to a community, that was something that really excited me about coming down here. And then, of course, you know, Miami and being a wonderful place um, was so excited to, you know, bring my family to South Florida and be part of this community. So a lot of those were really high ranking for making the decision to come down here. Um, And uh, sports has always just been very exciting, you know, attending a lot of sporting events, playing sports uh, in school. And just the opportunity to work in an industry that I, you know, had so much passion for, um, you know, was was just really exciting for me to have that opportunity. All right, now be honest. Did you grow up a Yankee fan? <laughs> I do. I grew up in a split household. So I grew up in New Jersey, and so uh, we were some Mets fans in the house and some Yankees fans in the house, but overall sports fans. So you know, whatever season it was, um, you know, there was always sports on TV in our house, and we were always out, you know, in the parks playing sports. And you know, that's one of the things I love about uh, Miami and the South Florida community is I, I feel that same kind of passion down here. It's all right. We have a lot of fans from everywhere. We all started as fans of some other team, by the way. So before the Marlins showed up, was it was it Derek Jeter who talked you into coming down here? It was um, it was a, a collaboration amongst the ownership group. So I was really fortunate to have landed on a short list of people that were interviewing for some of the initial positions when. Um, the ownership group was, you know, found out that they were going to get the team. So, uh, yeah, so I was fortunate to be working in New York and, uh, you know, rode the subway around quite a bit uh, in one day and met with uh, with Derek, with Bruce Sherman, uh, with some of the other board members. And, you know, I feel really fortunate to, uh, you know, have been selected to, to come down for this role. But it was it was a great group. Um, you know, I think you can see myself here as uh, the chief operating officer and across the aisle from me. I have Kim Ang as our for general manager and the first you know, female uh, general manager in professional sports. Just a, a really great group that's open minded and really looking for, um, you know, filling the right the roles with the right people. You know, it, it's so fascinating, too, uh, when you say that, because, yes, the Marlins have set the precedent, uh, you know, putting women in very high positions. Why do you think it's taken this long for professional sports? And and we see other teams now in other leagues starting to slowly move. And now women are moving into even coaching positions on men's teams. But why do you think it's taken so long? Just, you know, look at myself as an example and, you know, love sports all my life. And coming out of college, I just never thought of sports as a career for me. 
And I don't know why, um, but when I talk to, you know, young women today, I say, you know, th this is a place for you. So I think it's about that pipeline and whether people see themselves um, in these roles. Um, I think you know, I really admire Kim and she does a great job of being out there for the community and being a role model and, and showing people that it is possible. Um, and I'd like to emulate her on, on those uh, aspects and try to get out there as well. But I think it, you know, it is just about more people seeing people that look like them in these roles and saying, oh, okay, that that is within the realm of possibilities. Um, so I, I think, you know, we're, we're going to make a lot of progress in these coming years here. I got to ask, because uh, obviously earlier this year, when the news came out that Jeter was leaving, I mean, the community kind of took a step back and it was a surprise. Um, has that been demoralizing in any way or how, how is the team handling that? a sudden announcement but you know it didn't really change the the work we've done or the the foundation that we've built here and we're committed to deliver you know what we've promised to the south florida community um, i think we've been impressed with you know our organization and our partners in the community really just just reaching out and reaffirming that they're behind us they're part of what we're building here and just you know the strong relationships that you know myself kim our partnerships team our memberships team um have with the community and um you know that those bonds are are going to be there and they're going to last so you know part of you know, building that relationship, you know, you have to build that relationship with fans uh, because a team is an important part of a community. As you already know, you grew up in, in New Jersey and, and you know the history that Mets and Yankees have with fans. Um, you probably already know coming to this community now that there is a very strange relationship with the fan base in the Marlins because this is a team that's won two World Series. But We've had past owners who then shredded the team and dashed our hopes. And then, of course, there's the stadium, you know, just to mention again that that's a very controversial uh, issue for a lot of people because the taxpayers are on the hook for that for a long time. You know, when you have teams like the Red Sox, Yankees, Cubs, they have a bond with the, with the community that lasts a century. This is still a relatively new team, and it's already got problems. How do you overcome that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Uh, and it's definitely a difference in having, you know, a generational fan base in places where teams have been, you know, around for generations and in families and are passed down versus building our fan base. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, we certainly have to work a little harder and, um, you know, live up to our promises to the community and make that outreach. So I think it was a couple ways across our business. Um, you know, we've been out there in the community really trying to connect both as a front office, but also getting our players out there for the community to get to know them. Um, you know, Kim and the team are really working on bringing the fans the consistency, um, you know, that, that they deserve and, you know, having that opportunity to com compete for a championship each and every year. Um, and uh, one of the things that, you know, I've enjoyed in, in the, the recent time here is, is seeing, you know, the community get to know uh, Bruce Sherman, our principal owner. Um, you know, he's been out there with us and, um, you know, participating uh, in events. And you know, I think it's been great to build, build that bond with the community as well. I'm speaking with Caroline O'Connor. She's the Chief Operating Officer or COO of the Miami Marlins. We're talking about baseball in Miami and how the team is connecting with the community here. Have you been to a game recently? Let us know and share your thoughts on our social media at WLRN Sundial. There is that aspect uh, you know, that part of it when you're connecting with the community. But again, I think in the end, sports, 
in the end, we want, and I'm speaking as a fan now, we want a winner. I, w- I don't want to tear the team down. I care deeply about the team. It, since 2010, the Marlins are the losingest team in the league. It's a big part of it's got to be winning. You know, what, what is it that the team is, what, what's the team doing to put that on the field? Yeah, it's definitely something that we are attentive to here at the organization and, you know, have seen some of the moves that, you know, Kim and the organization made um, in the off season of, you know, signing players um, and really focusing on building that on-field product. I think we certainly have focus there. And I like to, you know, say that we've seen some response from the community on that uh, perspective. So, you know, we got off to a, a great start uh, this year, uh, having a nearly sold out home opener and winning that home opener, which is really exciting for us. And, you know, I think we have brought some of those exciting players that connect with the community, that do exciting things on the field, um, you know, and that our fan base can be proud of. And um, you know, we're, we're seeing that um, in our attendance, which we're really thankful for and hope to um, keep seeing through the season. But um, you know, we're really pleased with uh, the fans coming out to support this team. You know, again, as a fan, um, I think back and the last time that I was, and, and, and again, supporting the team as much as I can, but the last time I remember that excitement was when Jose Fernandez was there. And he was there before you arrived. He died before you arrived, I should say. And he just brought a joy. He was the local hero. He was the guy who, just, I mean, his personal life connected with so many people in this community and, and people just that filled the stands every day, every time he took the, the mound. How does the team keep his legacy alive? I think it's a really broad, uh, broad legacy, but, um, you know, broader into the relationship between, you know, the, the Cuban community and baseball, you know, both here, um, you know, you know, and uh, overseas. So I think there's a, a deep love of baseball and a passion, a commitment to the sport. Um, and so that's where, you know, we've seen ourselves connecting on those elements and um, keeping, I think, that you know, overall love for the game in the forefront. Uh, last year, you know, we had the opportunity to partner with Nike and launch our City Connect jersey program. And, you know, the heritage legacy that we went to right away um, was, you know, the Cuban Sugar Kings to really celebrate the history um, of the sport and the relationship with our pinstripe red jerseys that, um, you know, the, the community really embraced. Um, for us, you know, we're going to keep that at the forefront. Um, May 21st, we're going to kick off our first um, you know, heritage game uh, this year for the season, we're going to be debuting, you know, our red pinstripe legacy jerseys again. And then um, we're going to have legacy Saturdays every Saturday throughout the season to continue to keep that in the forefront and, and celebrate that great, rich history. You know, and, and look, you're on the money side and I've, I've been dying to understand this. Um, baseball, I think one of the frustrating things is that, you know, every team is spending a different amount uh, you know, to put a winner on. And so it seems like the teams that spend the most do the most winning. They get the biggest stars. And you have like the Marlins, I believe, this is just the last thing I checked. You would know better, but it, that the Marlins are spending about $80 million on its payroll. But then you have Los Angeles, the Dodgers. They're spending $288 million on their payroll. So they get the bigger stars. Does the team have to spend the money to get the big stars to attract the fans and win. Is that is that how baseball is set up? I think our belief is that the relationship with the community is is broader than that. That, you know, baseball is something that people, you know, lo- love as a sport. 
And again, what our goal is to have a consistent um, product on the field and to, you know, deliver something that fans can be proud of year after year. Um, for us, you know, I think it's bringing the quality of players that, uh, you know, connect with our community that represent our team well. Um, and I think that's where we're focused to, um, you know, build something that's sustainable uh, and not have ups and downs. When you're at the games, do you actually get to enjoy the games or are you always in work mode? Well, again, I'd say work mode is in enjoying the games. And um, part of, you know, my enjoyment is seeing other people enjoy the game and having that experience. So for us, whether it's a, a youth league game where we have uh, the T-ball kids or the little league kids coming through the gates and they're wearing their Marlins little league outfits or, you know, celebrating as a group or a special birthday for me, you know, I get great joy in seeing other people have a great time at our games. And, you know, that feels like success for us. We've got two World Series titles. People love the game. We want to we want to believe in this team and follow the team. Caroline, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I do wish you and the team the best going forward this year. Thanks, Liz. Appreciate it. That, again, is Caroline O'Connor, COO for the Miami Marlins. The Marlins are playing tonight at Marlins Park, actually. They are starting a three-game series against the Washington Nationals. And I am a fan, and I am rooting for the team. I want to see a winner. We all want to see a winner. I'll tell you what, I am in the mood now, though, for uh, for some popcorn and some peanuts and a beer and a seat on the third, third baseline, and I'm golden. So go Marlins. Let's do it. Well, that's our program for this Monday, May 16th, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Avaya is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our news director is Taryn Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Meritz. Richard Ives pushing the buttons today. And our theme music, not what you're hearing right now, by the way, is from the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. Well, coming up tomorrow on the show, we're going to hear from Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava on two big issues. We're going to talk about housing and we're going to talk about climate. Plus, we spoke with our Sundial Book Club author for the month, Robin Fazard. He remembers what it was like growing up in 1980s Miami during the drug trade. And we're going to talk about his book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. All of that coming up tomorrow on the show. Remember, you can catch a rebroadcast tonight at 8 o'clock or find us on your podcast app. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.